Cairo, Seattle. It's time to get schooled with a professor, Sean Clayton. Welcome to School with a Professor. Great book that's coming out in the middle of September, just a couple weeks away, is Elway, A Relentless Life. My buddy Jason Cole, who known for so many years, uh, wrote this book. And uh, first off, Jason, as we get into Elway, because one of the things that you were able to capture was the fact that uh, you know he's such an interesting character because you're talking about uh, one of the greatest quarterbacks in NFL history, a guy that uh, you know made the move into uh, watch uh, being a business person, then got into management, and then of course uh, was able to get on with the Denver Broncos as the president and pretty much just be the guy that got them to Super Bowls. So talk about how you first got onto this book. Well, I mean, I've been working on this for whew, since. 2013 or 14 and just you know I talked to john many times over the years in his capacity either as a player uh, or when he returned to, to denver as uh as an executive um obviously i went to college with john so i watched him there um i wouldn't say that we didn't have a relationship when we were in college but um obviously i knew of him he couldn't escape that i uh, I just think I followed along with his career, known his friends, ended up talking to more than 200 people for this. And I think you've hit upon something. I mean, he's a really incredibly rare human being who the playing career wasn't enough. You know, and there are a lot of players who go into coaching, but there's the, the challenge to be either a head coach or to become an executive like this. I mean, we've seen a few of people do this, like, say, an Ozzie Newsom. But there's only been two guys in the history of the league who, won a Super Bowl as a player, made it to the Hall of Fame, and then came back and led a team either as a head coach or a top executive um, to another Super Bowl victory. And that's Mike Ditka and John Elway. And Elway, you know, this wasn't handed to him. I mean, he went and worked in both private business, as you refer to, and then worked in the Arena Football League to sort of prove it because a lot of people in the Denver organization just said, why would John ever want to do this? And the thing is that John is unique because he never wanted to stop competing. When he was done playing football, he wanted to continue to compete in anything that he did. Well, one of the things I think was so intriguing is first, as you've written about, is that uh, you know his ability to be able to get Peyton Manning to come there and get the uh, Denver Broncos to the Super Bowl. Kind of give us some of the anecdotes of how he reflected on that. Well, one of the things was that it was one of the cl- slowest sales. You know, like there's the slow play on a sales, and there's, you know, there, usually people are trying to sell you and they're in your face and they're, or they're reminding you, know, they're like, hey, remind, remember, I had this deal on the table for you. I'm, you know, we'd really like to have you. And they can't, they can't help themselves but to get involved. And one of the funny sort of anecdotes in this is, after Manning came through and they did this long um, process where he was in the, in the building for, you know, several hours to ask a lot of questions, a lot of pointed stuff, wanted to know exactly how the organization was run. They went to dinner after they went to dinner, Elway and, and Manning ended up at um, you know, Cherry Hills golf club and, and in Denver. And they ended up in this private room upstairs, this lounge upstairs and, 
John Lynch is there and John Fox is there and some other people are there. And Elway and Manning just go off and they talk and they end up talking for like two hours just by themselves. And once that was done, Elway went straight into the slow play. And meanwhile, like John Fox can't help himself. John Fox is this, you know, longtime NFL head coach, assistant coach, who's been a college coach and had been a recruiter. And Fox kept coming in all the time to Elway's office going, have you heard anything? Do you want me to check on him? Do you want me to call his, you know, his friends? Do you want me to call this? You know, and, and Elway's like, just, just let him be. Just relax. And well, the reason is that Elway said, look, if I had been in that situation, I could just imagine if I had just been let go by the the team I played my you know first 11, 12 years with, 13 years, whatever, you know, I'm trying to remember why, 13 years at that point, I would have been really in shock, and I wouldn't have wanted people bothering me. So we did our sales pitch, and then I let them be. And meanwhile, the rest of the league, a lot of the times, was stumbling over itself trying to get this deal done. And I think the key was that Manning said, this guy's a Super Bowl winning quarterback. He's been in my position. I can trust him. I know what it's going to be like. He knows what I need. And he's not just in my face all the time. So I think that that ultimately was a big issue. Yeah, and that, look, they had some bumps in the road during their time together. You know, that's what competitive people do. But they ended up with a Super Bowl victory. And so it was a, it was a stunning relationship. What kind of bumps in the road would you say, from the competitive standpoint, would it be? Well, after that 2014 season, you remember how that one ended. Um, I'm sorry, the 2013 season, in January 2014, when they lose to Indianapolis in the first round of the playoffs in their first playoff game, and they really get hammered pretty hard. And that's when Fox quits. Um, and really, Fox quit before the game, as everybody remembers. That, you know, Jay Glazer broke the news that Chicago would be interested, in, or that that Fox would probably be let go by the Broncos if they lost the game, and that led to Fox ultimately ending up with the Bears. The fact that that story came out before the Bears really irked Elway a lot. I mean, it, it really upset him a lot. And Jack Del Rio at that point had already basically gotten the Raiders job. Adam Gase was in line for the 49ers job. And Elway just looks, remembers looking down the field and just thinking, you know, all these, all my main coaches have quit on me and quit on this team. And one of them did it basically in public because anybody who knows the relationship between Jay Glazer and John Fox knows that, you know, Glazer obviously talked to Fox before the game about that. And Fox could have put an end to it if he really wanted to, but he didn't. And that story went out there. And you had a team that was very distracted. And in the aftermath of that, I think Elway was, you know, you know, Manning wanted Fox to stay um, very much so because he liked playing for Fox. He had a lot of control over the offense. He liked Gase being there, the whole setup he had. Um, but Elway was like, look, the urgency is now. We've already lost the Super Bowl to Seattle once, and now we just get beat. And you're banged up. We need to change the direction and focus of this team. And that's when they brought on Gary Kubiak. And those guys butted heads, you know, over that. It wasn't it wasn't a really pleasant ride during that time. But of course, that's one of the things I think really put Elway over the top in running a team is what he did after the loss to Seattle in the Super Bowl. Because what he saw was the physical nature and the way that Seattle put its defense and Pete Carroll put its defense together, and he started to mirror that. You know, making moves to get a hard-hitting safety, to get a safety that can play deep, and he he seemed to kind of model what he saw that went against 
the Denver Broncos and matched that up and was able to get his Bronco team back to the Super Bowl, but not only that, but win. Absolutely. I mean, remember, they, they have a great back end of that defense with the three corners. You know, they have, you know Harris, Tlaib, Roby uh, early on. so they could The, the no-fly zone, as they there. called it. The no-fly zone. Yep, the no-fly zone. They did a fantastic job there. They had the pass rush up front you know, with Ware and Miller and um, – you know, the depth that they had, uh, you know, on that, on that front with Eric Wolf and uh, I'm trying to remember the, the, the big defensive tackle who ended up in Jacksonville after that year. It just escapes my mind at the moment. But, they, you know, they just had a fantastic group. The linebackers could run all day, basically. They were sort of de facto safeties in some, in some respects, a couple of those guys. So he really did a fantastic job of building a speed defense that could cover in the modern, in the modern NFL. And really finished off, and it's exactly right. That defense led them because, you know, as everybody remembers in that season, um, you know, their you know, Manning wasn't wasn't healthy. You know, they're just piecing it together with Osweiler and trying to get through games as best they can, and you know, eke their way into the top seed so that they can host all the way through. And they do an amazing job on defense. You know, beating Roethlisberger and beating Brady. And then finally being Cam Newton in the, in the Super Bowl, who had been the MVP of the league that year. Yeah, that's the thing, again, where he doesn't get the credit uh, in the sense that, okay, he envisioned a no-fly zone. He copies a lot of the stuff that Seattle did that got them to the Super Bowl. And I know when I think when uh, this is I think we're doing this for the Pro Football Hall of Fame, both you and I and the 46 others. You know, we're taking a look at the all-decade all decade team and all that stuff. And, you know, when you look at the two teams of the decade, I mean, Seattle is either one or two, New England's either one or two, and Denver is number three. And so much of that, even though there's been problems of late with what uh, has happened with the Broncos, I mean, probably the third best team of the decade. Oh, absolutely. And, and he has been integral to that. Obviously, like getting Manning, you get the quarterback, and that solidifies a position. Then building this great defense, because he intuitively understood as a, as a former quarterback what a great corner or a great pass rusher is like so he understood building a defense i think in some ways better than picking a quarterback but he had manning there but the other thing that people don't really consider is he's like when i talk about slow playing this thing back with with manning one of the keys is they're still trying to get out of the tebow era because if they're stuck in the Tebow era and they can't get out of the, that one from a PR standpoint, who knows what becomes of that organization? And who knows what, what direction they end up going? But they don't go to the playoffs, you know, you know the five straight years that they went to the playoffs. They don't go to you know, two Super Bowls and win one. And, you know, like, I think that Elvin looks back at that and thinks the year that they lost to Baltimore, you know, on, on the long pass by Flacco in overtime, or, you know, they could have got them to overtime. He thinks they should have won. They should have won that year as well. And he, you know, that he wasn't happy with that one and how they played defense in that in that game. But that team is as good as almost any of that decade when you talk about Seattle and knowing what Denver is right there in terms of what they were able to achieve on a consistent basis. I don't know if you saw what Mike Tannenbaum of ESPN, the former general manager of the Jets and the Dolphins and that, put out, and it co- kind of goes into kind of unconventional thinking, but now you start to think about it. And what he put out is that uh, last year, 
13 teams uh, invested more in the secondary than they did the defensive line. This year, there's like 13 teams, but of the 13 teams from last year, six made the playoffs. I know Pete Carroll's that way, Bill Belichick's that way. It's like, okay, you build back to front, which, of course, the conventional thinking is you build front to back. Has Elway said anything about that as far as that building with the no-fly zone up front? Well, look, I think anybody's going to tell you, and he's always consistent about this, uh, like, I really believe in pass rushers. You can't replace yeah, great, great pass rushers. And so you try and find those guys. And again, you get a Von Miller, and that's a guy who stirs the drink for your pass rush for a, you know, for a decade. You get DeMarcus Ware along the way, even at the end of his career, he's helping out. You get guys like Wolf, you get, um, you bring in Chubb now to try and see if he can be that next guy. You're always looking for those guys. Because those are the guys who make your quarterback nervous, okay? But I think there's also a little bit in this era of if I find really good depth and really good athletes, I can pass rush and I can fake it up with guys who may not be complete defensive linemen. So you can, I think there's a tendency to believe, okay, I can find those guys a little bit later now, all right? I can, you know, I can get a guy like Ngakwe a little bit later in the draft and I can wait on him. Um, if I'm not asking him to do too much, but I better be able to cover. I better be able to take some things away. I better be able to tackle really well on the back end and make sure that people you know, run through my run through my defense constantly because people are going to throw it in this league and they're going to get completions because that's the nature of the game. The question is, can you hold those completions down? Can you keep the efficiency down so that you can create some opportunities on third down to then turn those, you know, pass rushers loose and hopefully have a truly great one like a Von Miller. But you can also fake it up occasionally with a guy who may just be a great, you know, straight ahead guy who doesn't hold up on point of attack, doesn't have to play the run, and you just let the let them ride. So I think that that's part of that philosophy that you're talking about. I'm remiss right now because I spent more time talking about Elway, the front office executive, as opposed to Elway, the player. Let's go to Elway, the player, because certainly the two things that were amazing at the beginning of his career is one that I know he had a a knee issue that was pretty serious, and he fought through that, and he also did not want to go to the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, Well, the Baltimore Colts. The Baltimore um, Yeah, of course. (laughs) Yeah, the Baltimore Colts. You're right. No problem, because uh, he's not a favorite in Baltimore. They don't care about Timothy and Indy. But, uh, the, the knee injury is one from high school, actually. In senior year in high school, about, I think, midway through that season, he, he tore you know he tore the knee up and ended up being a torn ACL, which never got repaired. And they didn't really discover that until he got to Denver when they did an examination of the knee, and they found out that his body had just adjusted to it. And the funny part is, there, you know, there are anecdotes from his friends in college that if he ran wrong and hit the knee wrong, it would just blow up like a grapefruit. So some of his friends were talking about how they'd play basketball. they play intramural basketball against the rules, of course, because the coach didn't want to play. But one time he, like, goes up for a lift, comes down, his, his knee ends up like a grapefruit, and his, and his buddies are all yelling at him uh, to get up and, like, you know, yelling some profanities at him to get up. And then they see the knee and uh, they all go, yeah, we scattered like cockroaches after we realized he was hurt because they were afraid of what was going to happen to all of them. But as for Baltimore and, you know, look, the, the story has been told about how, you know, Jack Elway did not want his son playing for Frank Cush 
the family itself did not want to play for Bobby Ursay because Bobby Ursay, the owner then, you know, of the of the Baltimore Colts was at war with the city of Baltimore and the team was terrible. They had gone winless the year before and that strikes shortened season. So, you know, that they had traded away Burt Jones, they had Arch Leister, you know, the, the whole organization was a mess. And they just said, we're not going to play there no matter what. And he had the offer from the Yankees and made it work. But I will say this, the backstory of what Edgar Kaiser, and you might be one of the few people who probably remembers who Edgar Kaiser was. He owned the team. He owned the Broncos for two years. But the backstory of him pulling off this trade, because it was really him. Because like, guys like Dan Reeves and John Beak and all the, the coaches and Jim Sacamano, who didn't have a hand in this, but just, looked and, and said, you know, Mr. Kaiser, we're never going to be able to pull off this trade. What are you talking about? We just can't do it. Kaiser just kept working and working and working it because of the relationship that he had developed with Irsay prior to buying the Broncos because he almost bought the Colts. So, you know, it, it's just fascinating how he was able to pull that off when people like Al Davis and Tom Landry and even Bill Walsh you know, thought about trading for Elway that year, even though they had Montana. So all these Hall of Famers, Don Coriel is chasing Elway in the middle of this with the Chargers. All those Hall of Fame executives, coaches, owners are trying to get Elway. And here comes, out of nowhere, Edgar Kaiser, this, this kind of owlish-looking guy who looks like an accountant who's owned a team for all of about a year, and he pulls off one of the mega trades of all time. And again, he slow-played it. And one of the key things, and you'll appreciate this thing, John, is there are two preseason games. This game, this trade comes down to two preseason games that get played in 1984 and 1985. I will leave it at that, and we'll have you read why the two preseason games were the key to making that trade work. Hmm, interesting. One final thought, though. Take us through the last couple years, because, I mean, he was always good enough to put the team in a position to get into the playoffs, get to a championship game, get to the Super Bowl. But it took him to the very end when his skill sets were starting to drop down to get the Super Bowl rings he's been looking for. Oh, well, look, I mean, you know, they finally they get Shanahan. And Shanahan has the West Coast offense, which he's modified with his running game. Um, you know, which yeah, as a great technical understander of the of football, you can you can explain that to the audience very well. But suffice to say that cutback blocking style that he he came up with that Terrell Davis was perfectly fit for. Um, you put that combination with a, a defense that may not have been awesome, but was certainly very good. They finally had all the ingredients, and the most important thing is, I think you had Shanahan and Elway, who were on the same page. Well, for the first 10 years, as successful as the Broncos were, because they made three Super Bowls, they did lose, and they got, they got, you know, they got ripped apart in those three Super Bowls, clearly, and Elway took a lot of, a lot of heat for that. Reeves and Elway were just never on the same page. They always had disagreements. They had, you know, it ended there in a very bitter fashion. There's a story that I relate where, Shanahan, Elway, and, and um, Reeves are in the room together, and it gets ugly. It gets really, really ugly in a hurry in that meeting. And that's with you know a couple of years left in that relationship. But they were just never on the same page. But when Shanahan got there, Shanahan knew the perfect offense and knew what to put next to Elway. And Elway kept at it. And the one thing that you hear from his teammates again and again, even after that huge loss that they severed, 
suffered to Jacksonville in Denver when they had had the number one seed in the AFC, a big upset, um, you know, at, at mile high. He just kept coming back and coming back. And then when I say a relentless life, that's what I really mean. A guy who just will not back down, whether it was in his playing career or whether it's in his personal private career, you know, private business career, he's never backed down. That's why he was willing to do six years in the arena league to finally get his chance to come back, um, you know, to be an executive and continue to compete now. The book is Elway, A Relentless Life. Jason Cole wrote it. Now, how can everybody get it? They can go to Amazon.com right now, right now. Go on Amazon.com and you can order it or you can go to BarnesandNoble.com or you can, if you like to go to bookstores still, and bless you if you like to go to bookstores. September 15th is the release date. Um, so Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com or September 15th, it comes out in bookstores. So please buy it. And uh, John, I appreciate so much for your, uh, the time we've had here to talk about it. And I really enjoy this. Jason Cole, thank you so much and good luck in the book. I know it's going to do well. Thanks for joining us on Schooled with the Professor. All right. Thank you, John. And that does it for this week's podcast. In between episodes, you can follow me on Twitter at Clayton ESPN. If you enjoy these weekly one-on-one conversations, consider leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to the show. Thanks for listening. See you next time on Schooled with the Professor.